Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, hello, hello. This is Bethnal Green calling. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. I'm the presenter of Londonist Out Loud, Londonist's weekly podcast about all things London. And of course, we know that London has many rivers, but the one that is drawing all the focus at the moment is the Thames. Festivals, floating animals, and at the Museum of London Docklands, a celebration of the bridges over the Thames. We've spoken in past episodes to the exhibition curator there and a cornerstone of the museum's profiling of the bridges is a work put together by artist Scanner. I started naturally enough by asking him about the project. It's very simple in a way. It's an installation, 36 speakers, broadcasting a variety of voices recorded from around the world. People contributed their own stories and voices. So essentially what you hear is Korean, Japanese, Italian, French, Dutch, and so on, listing names of bridges from all these different localities. And then in between, you hear people tell their very personal stories, stories about kissing on a bridge at midnight in the snow, as if in a movie, people going for their first date on the Southbank Centre, somebody getting lost in a loop on Tower Bridge, and no matter where they seem to drive in London, always ending back at Tower Bridge in the same place at the same time. So all these kind of quirky stories. So essentially it's this immersive installation. You walk inside and spend two minutes or two hours listening to this sonic world of bridges. It's a very organised piece, believe me. There's a, there's a map of the speakers, which is a little bit overwhelming, where there are 36 speakers, each mapped to each individual story. So if you were to see how it's actually put together, it's extremely neat. But what I wanted with it was to have a sense as if you're going on a boat through a river. And you're picking up these different details as you go through. So a city, a journey, is about an element of chaos. I can make it in as neat and an organised way as I want, but it has to reflect the city in a way. It has to reflect the way that a river moves. So the speakers all hang at different heights. I considered hanging them all at the same height, and I thought that is just too OCD, really. You know, let's have them at a different angle. And also the fact is it means that very small children wheelchair visitors all kinds of characters can actually enjoy the piece and people significantly taller than me the funny side of this being that when you install the speakers and you have to sound check them all i can't actually reach some of them so you almost have to be held on somebody's shoulders to get onto the uh, the, the listening ability of the speaker to actually reach it so this sounds like it has the potential to cause the taller among us headaches hopefully yeah that's the idea absolutely so a cull of the uh, the, the taller people <laughs> yeah, there's actually there's a there's a, a, a especially low ceiling put in to stop tall people entering the exhibition it's about time a stop was put to them 
I think so. I've been campaigning for years. <laughs> and uh, this is part of a festival which we've mentioned in, in previous podcasts. Shall we talk about the genesis of the idea? And I want to really pin you down and find out how genuinely this does spring from the bridges over the Thames and how much of it perhaps was an idea that might have surfaced under any circumstances. It's funny, actually. The, the uh, And let's be honest here. The absolute true story is, and this is how it works, I told the museum this just uh, just this week, actually, there was an open call to invite, as they like to call them, sound artists or people working with sound to suggest an idea for the exhibition, Bridges. So it's a work that relates to the water. So I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity, as did apparently countless other people. But I had absolutely no ideas at all. I tortured myself with an idea of, why don't I build a sculpture of a bridge and somehow people can interact with it in the museum? Or should it be using recordings of the, the River Thames or the local water in Docklands and bring that back inside the museum? Every idea I had, I thought was absolute rubbish. It came to the Thursday of the deadline. The deadline was 5.30. You had to put your proposal through digitally online. And around three o'clock, I suddenly thought, hmm, this is an idea. Maybe the stories is really, you know, really important. I'm always interested in people. And I like people's stories. And I like voices. And they're very reflective of an environment. They tell you something about a city, a town, a person. So I came up with this very basic idea. I was shortlisted for an interview. And I remember even as I walked into the interview, thinking to myself, this is such a rubbish idea. I'm really not sure. But I've got to follow this through because this would be unprofessional not to turn up. And as I sat there during the interview describing the idea, I suddenly thought to myself, actually, this works. Actually, this could really succeed. You know, if this happened, this would be great. And I found myself getting quite enthralled by it. So there was no idea before the project began. I mean, sometimes we all keep notes of stories or, you know, possibilities of shapes and structures for a project. I really had no idea. I've never worked with rivers. I've never worked in this way in, in a museum. And it somehow came together. But even at the interview, I said, what I'm open to is making a work that actually we can converse about. I don't want to give you something that's finished here on paper and then I make that exact work. I'd like us to be in conversation so that as this process develops over the next three or four months, I can have feedback from you guys and let's try and make this so it's a happy kind of medium in a way. And that's what's happened. So the work developed from one very simple idea, which was this list of bridges, through to two things, the bridge names and the stories. So it's, it's almost from the very global, the impersonal, these bridge names that you have no control over. They are just these kind of, it's an iconography of a city. It's a way of kind of mapping the geography. At the same time, revealing something that's really personal with people. They're very intimate stories of what happened to them on a bridge and combining these two. So one, in a sense, has no meaning and one has lots of kind of intimate meaning. But they all have meaning. Of course they do. I was very interested by a mention that was made of the use of the names of the bridges and the suggestion of the city's history through those. And, of course, a lot of places re retain uh, fragments of their history that would be other otherwise lost through town names, through bridge names, through place names that sometimes mutate. But I, I was wondering how you brought that into the sort of art project that you're talking about. I think what's really revealing here, actually, is in listening back to the recordings is discovering that, uh, for example, there are bridges in Germany, which uh, there will be a bridge called like the uh, Blaubrücke, the Blue Bridge, but everybody calls it the Green Bridge because as it's changed over the years, the colours of the, of the metal on the bridge have changed. So everybody recognises it today as the Green Bridge. 
you discover that in many countries, the way we name things, I think, is really valuable because they either celebrate, they champion something that happened historically, or they're changed over the years to reflect something that happened in the locality. You know, so in, in some countries, bridge names only have dates. So, you know, there'll be the bridge, the 14th of September... 1982 will be the name of a bridge and you, there are some places where that's only that's the only way it happens you discover in some countries such as Iceland that basically there are no bridges there really are next to no bridges the only bridges that exist are small domestic bridges to cross streams the major bridges don't have any names it's quite extraordinary the kind of the, the, the things you learn but I think for me it's come from a fascination of traveling a lot over the last 20 or 30 years and when you travel Names are always alien to you. The first time you go to France, Italy, Japan, wherever it may be, sometimes you may, you may sort of laugh at the names. When you live in London and you hear somebody, an American, say Leicester Square, you can't help but grimace and want to say, it's Leicester Square. And that, you can hear people saying it in their heads almost as you hear somebody else say it in their American accent. But I often started thinking, when you go to Tottenham Court Road, was there a court there? You don't really think about this. It's just, it's, it's a way of mapping the city again. It's, you know, I can meet you at Oxford Circus. But as many, you know, uh, visitors will joke, you know, where's the circus at Oxford Circus or Piccadilly Circus? There are no animals. Well, there kind of are in the shops, but that's another story altogether. But that's, there was that fascination that's always been for me with language. And so when we started thinking about bridges for the exhibition in the discussion at the interview, I thought, wow, there's a way of really exploring the history of a city in a way and not only the, the city of London but also of the world and see what else comes back so when I got contributions from Vietnam for example I learned that in Vietnam you have to drive over certain bridges or walk over certain bridges when you get married or when you have an exam because it brings you good luck but you have to go in a particular order to bring you that good luck and there's something quite magical about that and I think what's really fascinating is once you have this huge collage of all these voices in a sense, it's, it's all this kind of magic for me, almost, around the world. It's almost like a spell being cast of these hundreds and hundreds of names all floating over one another. And then suddenly above them, this very banal but touching story appears of something that happened to them on a bridge, either funny, romantic, whatever it may be. So it's this kind of, it's, again, it's this, it's this balance between, in a sense, the recognisable, the visible and what I'd call almost invisible. N names are largely invisible of places until you see something that's either humorous, impossible to pronounce or whatever it may be. But there's, there's a way of, for me, in projects like this, of suddenly making you see the city again or see a name again. And I always think if somebody's experienced one of these works and just leaves for a moment and sees a name outside and thinks, I wonder what that really means, you know, Docklands. Ah, there must have been a dock here. You know, it sounds absurd, but we don't always think about the, 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 the origins of these words, these terms we use. It's astonishing, isn't it, to realise that that may well be an invisible uh, truth to somebody who's, I don't know, maybe born in this century and might not realise that. A note to American listeners, incidentally, of course, it's not Leicester Square, it's like Chester square <laughs> so what about the comparison what is the comparison of the way we handle bridges and the way we treat our bridges and the way we view our bridges in in this country in this city what, what have you learnt about that i think i've learned that in london we almost take no notice of them in a sense it's a uh, through largely speaking people have been speaking to it's it's a means of traversing one place to another i mean bridges are remarkable in their ingenious way of taking you through uh, over the impossible in a sense, you know, they take you across 
masses of water that you could never cross, bridges across uh, joining two mountains that would be impossible to, to, to make that journey. But we don't take any notice of them. You know, they're kind of there. The same way if we made a project about pavements and started thinking about that or brick walls. I think what's really funny is as soon as we start thinking about something, let's say you and I talk about sunglasses or shoes. As soon as you start having that conversation, you want to sort of your eyes want to creep down and check the shoes that the other person's wearing. Or if you're out in the streets, you start noticing everybody's sunglasses. So I think what I learned and learnt is that we take no notice of these things. And when I was in the museum, several days I spent actually in the Museum of London Docklands asking people stories about bridges. And you'd approach somebody and you'd say, look, I just wondered, you've been to see this exhibition on bridges. Do you have any memories of a bridge? Any stories? And almost every time they'd say no. And then they'd sort of mill around the bookstore and a few minutes later, one or two would come up and say, actually, you know, I do remember that every time my wife goes across the bridge... Uh, she recites this William Blake poem. I thought that was really fantastic. So I approached the man's wife and I said, look, I just heard this great story about you. Would you mind just telling it to me? She said, no, no, I'm too shy. So I never got the story. So it's it's quite funny that you have these moments you realise that until you point to it, you don't really think about them. I mean, I'm not sure. I think only when a bridge is closed do you even start thinking about it? Because you get frustrated thinking, I can't get from this point to the next point. Well, I think that speaks to a wider truth about how we take the city for granted. I mean, think of any tube or overground closure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what's, for me, that's what's quite intriguing. I think it's really of value to make work sometimes that actually offers a brief pause or a rethinking process about a city, a place, a person, a voice, a language, whatever it may be. And I think in the history of my work, projects I've made have often been reflecting on those kind of aspects, you know, of of finding something that's there all the time, largely invisible, and making it visible for a moment. So then we retune ourselves and hopefully invigorate, learn something and take it away with us. The listener might be getting a sense of deja vu and you might be, I'm not sure whether you'd be surprised to know that the last couple of artists who who work with installations in particular have been saying very much the same thing about the central drive behind their work, a central drive behind their work being to open the eyes of somebody who's over familiar with a particular area and just getting them to look again at it. Florentine Hoffman, creator of uh, Hippopotems, had exactly that to say. And I'm beginning to suspect that either we've hit a particular run of people or maybe there's a, a particular mode going on here, particular fashion. Um, uh, maybe I mean a mood in art. It's a good point, actually. I wonder how much work, in a sense, is about questioning and reshaping and throwing offering a mirror in a sense back to people i mean people often say that art is a type of mirror it's a it's a type of reflection but we all act as filters you know the way we take our information that we the way we take our news when you see an exhibition about bridges in the museum it's giving you a, a curator's point of view it's their their opinion on what they feel that would be of value to you as a spectator as a visitor to a museum if you were to make that same choice yourself it may be something quite different in a way. I think that's what's really rewarding about life in a, in a very generic way, in a very generalised way, I should say, is that these things are thrown at you and it makes you rethink, which I think is really important. We could become very banal and very uh, bored with our lives. And I like kind of shaping, reshaping myself and shaking things up a bit. You know, I mean, a good example is the 
traditional model anybody makes with creative arts is if you're a writer, you generally spend time developing a book, you write it, hope that somebody publishes it, hope that somebody then buys it, and you start working on the next one. Whilst all those royalties just pour and pour in, as we know, with you know, with writers, the same with music. You know, there's a, there's a very traditional model with music, which is that you work for some time on a product, and whether you're a jazz musician, whether you're a Fleetwood Mac, whether you're a Mariah Carey, whether you're Nigel Kennedy, it doesn't matter who it is. You you, you work on this material, you play concerts, you release a record, and you hope that somebody buys that product, and you play more concerts and earn more money, and watch those royalties pour in again, and. I, curiously, have never done that. I've always just walked away from it, to be honest. You know, I've, I've never found it of reward to follow that pattern. It's just not in my character. Uh, behind us here, there's a wall of CDs. That's my releases. So that's sort of 25 years or so of CD releases, and there's vinyl on the other side of us here. And, you know, for me, if I release five albums in a year or one album every three years. It doesn't really make a difference in a sense. So what I'm interested in is connecting with people in stories in a way. You know, I'm always interested in conversation. You know, I continue to do interviews because actually you realise you can learn so much more about yourself and your own sort of creativity in these kind of conversations. And I realise that a number of my friends are people actually we met in exactly this scenario now because you realise it's this... It's it's better than any date in a sense, because you can kind of just be really honest about who you are and what what you're interested in. And you're not trying to really necessarily sell something in a way. We're talking about an exhibition that's happening in a museum, but it's equally about you and I and about this kind of interaction. And it's interesting because, you know, we were talking before the tape went on about literature. And I think, you know, it's always fascinated me the way that language is a type of theatre. Obviously, there's a type of uh, control going on and the type of performance going on, you know, so you know that the way we're talking now, we wouldn't talk like this to a bank manager, you know, or you wouldn't talk like this to the hospital, to a doctor or, you know, whatever scenario. And I think what's fascinating that my, my first kind of public work that was successful was about voices. It was scanned phone calls. I was listening illegally to other people's phone calls. Yes, this might alarm some people. It, it may do. But I think, you know, if you think back 20, 25 years ago, an idea of public and private was in some people's minds but not really you know this was before we had oh i strongly disagree i think there was an assumption of privacy an assumption yeah but i think what's what's curious is you know people talk about today with social networks and everything you know you know i don't want to give all my information away and all kinds of discussions i think well you know 25 years ago i was making this work that actually was exploring these ideas as were other people quite obviously as they have done for years but what was interesting was mobile phones were a rarity in those days. They were very expensive objects. They were one to two thousand pounds to buy with very limited kind of carrier services and very expensive. And I made work that was basically listening to these conversations through a radio scanner, hence the name scanner, and then replaying them back to an audience, often live. I'd broadcast them live. So I'd stand in the Royal Festival Hall, play this music I'd written and then live throw these sounds through of people's very private conversations. And in a sense, nothing has changed in a way. I'm still interested in those moments. I'm still interested in that kind of, that complete banal, but something incredibly beautiful about these people. And I think for then what was interesting was I was listening to these conversations. If I recorded them, I'd listen to them again and again. How often do you listen to a conversation again and again? It's very rare if you don't work with sound, you know. And I think what's really interesting is you start realising how somebody uses pauses how they use particular phrases or how I discovered on the, on the listening to these scanned phone calls, 
how you read between the lines and then realize actually you completely misread a story in a phenomenal way. A good example, a guy ringing up a woman saying, you know, how are you? And she says, oh, I just, you know, I'm fine. Just had a nice, easy day. And they had this casual conversation for two or three minutes about going to an En Vogue concert, which kind of dates it, if anybody remembers the band En Vogue. It's kind of R&B act. And it's remarkable because then he suddenly says, well, you know, I haven't seen you yet, have I? How do I know how sexy you are? And then what you realise is they've never really met. And she's a prostitute. And then she has to describe how sexy she is in a very unsexy way. And at the end, she says, well, you know how much it is, don't you? And they go into all the kind of the the banter of how much things cost. And he's going to leave the door open to his flat and these kind of things. But what's funny, if you were to casually listen to this conversation, first of all, you think this is a boyfriend and girlfriend. But you have to, it's very, very subtle, the kind of intonation in it. And there's something really, to me, still very intriguing about the human voice. And as you say that when you're editing something, it draws you so much closer to that person. But most times we don't have that opportunity. And I think even with the installation here, me sitting here for many hours, in fact, getting RSI in my arm from editing the voices, these hundreds of contributions of people reading bridge names, you suddenly feel drawn into these worlds. I've got this guy from Denmark reading and then somebody from L.A. And the great one was the the, the fellow from L.A. is the man who does the voiceovers for lots of movies. Not Red Pepper. No, and I can't think of the fellow's name. He's, he's great. And uh, he's got a voice like this and says, you know, this bridge in L.A. And it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> Where she's got other people, there's a, there's a beautiful one of a, a woman in Wales with her daughter. And her, her daughter is probably about five or six, and she's trying to read the names in Welsh. But even, you know, as an adult, they're quite tricky, some Welsh names. And it's fantastic. So the, the mother says it, and there's this little echo as the daughter is also trying to read the names. And it's something really touching about that moment of mother-daughter and wanting to engage in this, you know. It's something, I think, you know, there's always something very uh, rewarding and revealing when you open up something to the public and ask for a contribution like this and see where... I'd like. It's like taking a, 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 a sticky ball on top of a hill and rolling it down, seeing what it picks up as it gets to the bottom, and that's what the work kind of does. If you'd like to see the artistic output of the Scanner, uh, the place to go is... The Museum of London Docklands, opening on the 5th of September and open until the 2nd of November of this year. Exhibition Bridging the World, installation in association with the exhibition called Bridge, which looks at the history of bridges through photography and documents, video installations, this kind of thing. Well, there we go, a flavour of the new installation by Scanner. Take a look at it yourself and check in with us for news, reviews and interviews around the Museum of London Docklands Bridge Exhibition here at Londonist.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.